I want to address a couple questions that have come in. So, do you think it is easier for children to fall into the first jhana? Yes. What happens to adults that makes it so hard to access first jhana that we have to be retaught? Uh, so, kids often stumble into one or more of the jhanas, first jhana, second jhana. I had one student who actually knew all four jhanas as a kid. And she'd be sitting there playing with her jhanas, and her mother would say, stop goofing off, go outside and play. Uh, she had no idea they were jhanas, of course. It was only when she came on the retreat, she realized she'd been doing them as a kid. But a lot of students, um, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the students report doing one or more of these as a kid. They're not that uncommon. But when you go to school and you start trying to deal with socialization and how do I fit in and how are my grades and so forth, uh, you get caught up in, well, building a sense of self, constructing a self. And uh, yeah, self is not really compatible with jhanas. And so, yeah, you lose it. Uh, most of the people that did them as children lose them once they start school. Uh, some keep it for a while. Some of them keep them permanently. And uh, occasionally I get somebody who, yeah, I do that all the time. I've been doing that since I was a little kid, but that's really rare. But it's, I think it's mostly the social pressures that make it hard for us to re-enter these states. Also, as a child, you have far more connections in your brain than you do as an adult. Uh, growing up not only involves making your body bigger, but it also means pruning those connections. And you prune away the connections that you're not using. This is part of what your mental development is about. And so I suppose you prune off the ones that are associated with the jhanas and you've got to reconstruct them. And that makes it harder to learn them as an adult than it was to stumble in as a kid. Another question. If we are supposed to be loading our practice time with more in the sitting position, then how do we work with corresponding increase in sore bums, knees, legs, etc.? For Vipassana, this wouldn't be a problem because I would just work with the pain, but for this practice, the pain can be quite a strong pull away from the nostrils. Yes, this is indeed a problem. Uh, about the best I can tell you is save your body. In other words, most people find that there are times of the day where, yeah, this is your best time. A lot of people, it's before breakfast. Uh, some people, it's the middle of the morning. A few people, it's late in the afternoon. Some people, it's late at night. For the times when you know it's your best time, that's when you want to sit cross-legged, sit on your bench, whatever. And the times that you know are your not-so-good time, then sit in a chair or some other uh, posture that is a little bit more comfortable. That's really about all you can do. Uh, it's more important to be comfortable than to look good, right? I mean, first place, nobody's going to see you because it's a Zoom retreat and nobody's going to see how you're sitting, 
right? So that's not going to do you any good. Uh, but yeah, find a way where you can be reasonably comfortable. And one of the hindrances we'll be talking about is aversion. If you're uncomfortable, <laughs> that's going to generate aversion. And the aversion will keep you out of the jhana. So figure out a way that you can be comfortable more often than not. Now, you don't want to be too comfortable because then you fall asleep. Uh, so sit in a chair some of the time. Sit on your bench or your cushion some of the time. Swap them around. Maybe some of the times you actually do lie down. If you do lying down meditation, I suggest that you prop yourself up a bit so that your head is up, you're not lying flat. Use multiple pillows. And draw your knees up so that your feet are flat on the bed or the floor or whatever you're lying on. And your knees are together. So with your feet on the floor and your knees together, you've got a nice stable triangle. And with your feet on the floor, this is pressure in your feet which informs your brain you're standing up so you don't fall asleep. Hopefully. But yeah, this is always tricky. We grew up with these evil things called chairs, and they have screwed up our ability to sit cross-legged. Oh well, we just have to deal with it. And yeah, if when you stand up, the discomfort goes away, then you're all right. If when you stand up, the discomfort remains, you're overdoing it. Don't do that. Right? So you've got to figure out how to you know, minor discomfort, but not so much that you have aversion. Okay. So, as Matt said, it's necessary to abandon the hindrances in order to enter the jhanas. This is what we find in the suttas, is basically one goes on alms round, come back, eat the midday meal, and then resorts to a secluded place, and then abandons the hindrances, and then enters the jhanas. Now, we talk about access concentration. If you're at access concentration, remember you're fully with the object of meditation, and you're not being pulled off into distraction. You're not being pulled off into one of these five hindrances. So the technique we're using to abandon the hindrances is get to access concentration. But sometimes there's a hindrance that's just a little too persistent. And just simply going back to the breath or the metta or whatever your access method is doesn't work. And so that's what we'll talk about tonight. So this comes from the second of the long discourses, Dignikaya number two, the Samanyapala Sutta. Having abandoned covetousness for the world, one dwells with a mind free from covetousness. One purifies one's mind from covetousness. So the hindrance here is called covetousness. We find it in other places as the desire for sense pleasures or the desire for sensual gratification. It's the wanting aspect of the mind. The wanting, even if it's for something wholesome like the first jhana, will get in the way. Right? You, you have to 
You have to get your mind quiet enough so you're not being pulled away. And if you're sitting there wanting the jhana, you are sitting there doing the thing that's going to prevent you from experiencing the jhana. So it's necessary to, yeah, let go of the wanting. The Buddha describes this wanting, this sense desire, as like having a bowl of water that you want to look into the depths of or see your reflection. But somebody's poured in many colored dyes, and so when you look into the bowl of water, you can't see the depths, you can't see your reflection. He also says, suppose a man were to take a loan and apply it to his business, and his business were to succeed so that he could pay back his old debts and would have enough money left over to maintain a family. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So the Buddha is comparing sensual desire to being in debt. If you're in debt, you have to continually work to pay back the debt. You can't call up the bank and say, well, look, I want to go on holiday this month, so I'm not going to pay my mortgage. Uh, they don't like that. Okay, you, you've got to keep working on it. Well, it's the same thing with sense desires. If you see a magnificent sunset, do you ever think to yourself, that was a magnificent sunset. I never need to look at another sunset. No, of course not. You're out the next evening looking for another magnificent sunset. Or you eat some delicious food. I don't know, ice cream. Really delicious ice cream. Not the cheap stuff from the shop, but the really good stuff. And it's so good, you think, I never have to eat ice cream again. No, of course not. You're back looking for the leftovers. Probably way too soon, right? No sense desire is ultimately satisfying. I mean, they're enjoyable. When they happen, enjoy them. Just don't get caught in the craving and clinging that is so obviously associated with them. Each sense desire simply leads to wanting another sense desire. So that's why it's like a loan. You've got to continually work to pay back the bank or your sense desire. Luckily, though, in the new sub-commentary. Okay, so we have the suttas, and then we have the commentaries to the suttas, which attempt to explain what the sutta said in more detail. And then we have the commentary to the commentary. That's called the sub-commentary. And then we have the commentary to the commentary. So the, the commentary to the commentary to the commentary. That's called the new sub-commentary. And in there, there are given six things to be developed for the abandoning of sensual desire. These are learning the side of the unattractive, that is, the repulsive nature of the body. Application to meditation on the unattractive. Guarding the doors of the sense faculties. Moderation in eating. Noble friends and noble conversations might not be the list you are hoping for. Okay, learning the sign of the unattractive, that is the repulsive nature of the body. And then application to meditation on the unattractive. At the time of the Buddha, if you had a lot of sensual desire, they sent you to the charnel ground to meditate. You're supposed to sit down in front of a rotting corpse 
and meditate with your eyes open on the fact that, yeah, it's a rotting corpse and realize that you're going to wind up like that and that person you're craving to be with is going to wind up like that and all of your supposed sense pleasures are just as impermanent as this dead body in front of you. I suppose it worked. I mean, they they still do that occasionally. Um, but, well, actually in the West, since there's a lot of people that have body image problems, I don't think it's a particularly good thing to do. I think it would be much better to get uh, an accurate sense of the nature of the body. That it's impermanent. That it, yeah, it has its blemishes, but it's a, it's a useful vehicle. It's, it's a good thing to have a body. It's a good thing to have a working body. And if it doesn't work so well, you figure out how to deal with the fact that it doesn't work so well in whatever that area is. So get a realistic view of the body. I think that's going to be more important. Guarding the doors of the sense faculties. This does not mean that you don't see and you don't hear. We actually need to use our senses to navigate the environment. Ayakema was fond of saying, our senses are not an amusement park. They're just a navigation aid, right? So you're going to be using them, but you want to be careful about what you take in. And that's what's going on here. It says that when one sees a sight, one does not become attached or attracted to the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states overcome one. Right? So when you see something that's beautiful, it's perfectly fine to recognize that it's beautiful, but guarding the senses means that you don't go, oh, I've got to get me one like that. I need to take it home and put it on my mantle or wall or yeah, whatever you're going to do with this beautiful thing you're experiencing. Can you just experience it? I used to teach outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And at Santa Fe on Sundays, the Native Americans would come in with their handicrafts to the main square to sell to the tourists. And so when you walk around that square, there are it's like being in a museum. There are all these fantastic handicrafts. And surrounding the museum are shops that are selling artwork from all the people in the area. Some of it's native. A lot of it is uh, white folks who live in the area. So you're in the middle of this indoor-outdoor museum. If you can look at all these things and just appreciate it without thinking, I've got to get me that. I've got enough money on my credit card. This would be such a, yeah. I loved going there because the retreat that I taught always ended on Sunday in the morning. And so we'd go in and have lunch somewhere around the main square and then just walk around and look at all this beautiful stuff. And I had no urge to buy any of it. Can you go into a, an art gallery where they're selling all the stuff there and just appreciate the art with no, nothing coming up about, I've got to get this or anything? If you can't, the guarding the senses would be maybe you don't go there. 
Guarding the census does mean that you're careful about, well, the TV shows you watch and the movies you go to and the places you go on the internet and so forth. You're restricting what comes in as to that which is going to be helpful. But even amongst the helpful stuff, you're still guarding your senses so you don't get carried away by the signs or secondary characteristics. The signs are what enable you to identify what it is, and the secondary characteristics are what comes up. Uh, you see a, a, a beautiful painting of a sunset, and so you identify it as a beautiful painting. And the sunset has secondary characteristics of, yeah, I want one of these, I want to take it home, or it brings up, yeah, tonight I'm going to go out and watch the sunset. Can you just see the beautiful painting and enjoy it as a beautiful painting? This would be guarding the senses. And the same for all the other things. Uh, you're walking down the street and you come to the bakery. And of course, the door to the bakery is always open. Why does the door to the bakery always open? Well, of course, because the smells come out and grab you by your nose and drag you into the bakery. Can you walk down the street? You see the sign for the bakery just ahead. Just as you get there, you exhale deeply. You inhale, enjoying the smell, and keep walking, as opposed to going in and getting a very unhealthy cinnamon roll or whatever it is you would get. That would be guarding the senses, right? You don't get lost. You don't grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics. Moderation and eating. So I've talked to 12 people so far on this retreat, and five people have complained about being sleepy. Uh, generally, I find uh, the first round of interviews, 40% of the people are complaining about being sleepy. We live in a culture that is promoting sleep deprivation. There's too much to do, too many interesting things to do. And so, yeah, in order to have time to do all that stuff, we get behind on our sleep. And so now you come on a retreat, you sit down, you get quiet, your body goes, oh, finally they stopped, I can get some sleep, and you fall asleep. And that goes on until you get caught up with your sleep. The first thing that you want to do when you come on a retreat like this is get enough sleep, right? Go to bed at a reasonable hour. If you need to sleep in at the start of the retreat, sleep in. It's no big deal. If you're sleepy after lunch, take a nap. But one of the things that you can do to help overcome the sleepiness is not eat too much food. When we're on retreat, say at Gaia House, you notice we don't have meditation periods right after a meal. Well, part of it is we need somebody to wash the dishes, but also it's kind of useless to meditate on a full stomach. Your body is busy digesting. Your energy is going into digestion. And the Buddha points out that energy and concentration need to be in balance. So if your concentration is up and your energy is down, yeah, you just fall asleep. So one of the things you can do is to, well, digest your food faster by eating less food. So moderation in eating helps with not falling asleep. But also on a retreat, uh, one of the most exciting things you're going to be doing each day is eat. I mean, you know, you've seen your breath before. 
and you've seen it again and again and again and it's probably not terribly exciting but that omelet that you're fixing for breakfast or that soup you're having for supper that's that's the exciting part if you eat a lot of food you'll be thinking about food a lot and so forth when you sit down to meditate you'll have the distraction of thinking about taste pleasures so moderation in eating will help you with that and then noble friends and noble conversations I'm going to delay talking about that for a moment The second hindrance. Having abandoned ill will and hatred, one dwells with a benevolent mind, sympathetic for the welfare of all living beings. One purifies one's mind from ill will and hatred. This is the aversion. This is the opposite of the first hindrance. The first hindrance is wanting. The second hindrance is not wanting. And we cannot want <laughs> lots of things. Uh, you don't want the noise that's outside that's bothering you, or you don't want whatever it was your boss did that was so stupid, and you're now arguing with him again about that, or your least favorite politician did something that was really stupid, and you're really upset about that, and this is all aversion. This is all the ill will and hatred. The ill will and hatred is the the most egregious examples. And the hindrance is really about any sort of aversion. One of the ways that aversion can show up is fear. You're sitting there meditating and you remember something and it generates fear. I said that actually all aversion is rooted in fear. All hatred is rooted in fear. Somebody raised their hand. They said, I hate broccoli, but I'm not afraid of it. And I said, yes, you are. You're afraid if you put it in your mouth, you will experience an unpleasant taste sensation. So, yeah, all of our aversion is afraid of something's going to happen to us. And so we want to figure out what we can do about it. And we get lost in that. And, yeah, it's a hindrance. The Buddha says, suppose a man were to become sick, afflicted, gravely ill, so that he could not enjoy his food and his strength would decline. After some time, he would recover from that illness and would enjoy his food and regain his bodily strength. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So, aversion, ill will and hatred, is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well, you can't think straight, you're hot, you can't do what you want to do. If you're overcome with ill will and hatred, you don't feel well, you can't think straight, you're hot, you can't do what you want to do. The Buddha also uh, compared ill will and hatred to a bowl of water that's sitting over a fire. And if you try and look into the depths, you can't see anything because it's bubbling and boiling and you can't see your reflection either. In the commentaries, they talk about ill will and hatred is like picking up flaming dung and throwing it at someone. Now, who's guaranteed to get burned? 
If somebody is throwing flaming dung at you, you don't have to catch it. You can jump out of the way. It's the same thing if somebody gets upset with you and starts throwing their ill will and hatred at you. You don't have to be in the same place. You don't have to throw your ill will and hatred back at them. Of course, if you, if you respond with equanimity, they may get even more upset, but that's their problem, not yours. Okay? There's a story in the suttas about a Brahmin who comes to see the Buddha, and he's very upset because his younger brother had come to see the Buddha the week before, and the Buddha had corrupted his younger brother because the younger brother had become a Buddhist monk. And so the Brahmin's giving the Buddha what for and shaking his finger in the Buddha's face and going on and on and on. When he finally pauses for breath, the Buddha says, excuse me, do you ever give a feast? Of course I give a feast. When you prepare a feast, do you prepare nice food for the feast? Of course I prepare nice food. Well, Brahmin, suppose nobody came to your feast. To whom would the food belong? Belong to me. Just so, Brahmin, I'm not coming to your feast. The Brahmin was so impressed that he too became a monk. Right? You don't have to take on somebody else's ill will and hatred. You can see them and respond with compassion to the pain they're feeling, to the fear they're feeling underneath all of it that they don't even recognize. Luckily, there are six things to do for overcoming ill will and hatred. The first of these is loving the sign of loving kindness, learning the sign of loving kindness. <coughs> Excuse me. The second, application to meditation on loving kindness and reflection on the ownership of action, abundance of wise reflection, noble friends and noble conversations. Well, for the first hindrance, you're supposed to go meditate in a charnel ground. Here, you got a much more enjoyable thing to do. If some aversion comes up, you first would, yeah, label it, relax, come back to your breath. Okay, but, you know, if that keeps drawing you away, then the thing to do is to switch to metta meditation, to loving-kindness meditation. You don't have to do loving-kindness for the one at whom you're averse. That may be too much. Do metta for yourself. Do metta for your best friend. Do metta for the Dalai Lama. You know, find somebody to do metta for. The metta is putting your mind in the opposite direction, and there's enough mental activity associated with it that hopefully it, you know, pushes the aversion far enough away. You could just continue with the metta for the rest of the sitting, or if you feel like you've calmed down enough, you can go back to the breath or whatever your other object was. Reflection on the ownership of action. Were you ever angry and did something that wasn't the wisest decision? Yeah, uh, you still have to deal with the karmic consequences, right? I mean, it's not like you can call up the karma gods and go, well, I was angry at that point. Can we just let that go? No, you're going to have to deal with the fact 
that, yeah, if you act out of anger, it might not be the wisest thing to do, but you're still going to have to reap what you just sowed. So reflection on the ownership of action. Abundance of wise reflection. When you're angry, when you have ill will and hatred, when you're full of aversion, notice what it's like. It's quite unpleasant. I mean, the anger may make you feel powerful, but it's an unpleasant power. And how much power do you really have? Would you have any less power if you were not angry? I mean, you can see where this was an adaptive thing when we were living on the savanna in Africa. You know, you needed to make yourself bigger than whatever it was that was threatening you. Uh, we don't live on the savanna in Africa anymore, right? So, yeah, pay attention to what it's like to be angry and realize, yeah, this is not really the best way to lead our lives. And then noble friends and noble conversations, which I'm going to defer once again. Having abandoned dullness and drowsiness, one dwells perceiving light, mindful and clearly comprehending. One purifies one's mind from dullness and drowsiness. It's often given as sloth and torpor. I've seen laziness and lassitude. Basically, it's too little energy. Too little mental energy. Yeah, it's time to meditate, but you know, I think I'm I think I'm just I'm going to lay down or I'm going to read a book or whatever. Okay? Or too little physical energy. You sit down to meditate and you fall asleep. Right? The Buddha compares this low energy state, this sloth and torpor to someone in a prison. Suppose a man were locked up in a prison. After some time, he would be released from prison, safe and secure, with no loss of his possessions. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. If you're in prison, well, you just sit there, missing out on all the good things of life. If you're caught in sloth and torpor, you just sit there, missing out on all the good things of the spiritual life. There is a state that's called sinking mind. It's kind of pleasant, but it doesn't have enough energy to be useful. And you're just sitting there. You're not quite asleep. Maybe you got a little hypnagogic stuff going on. It's, it's, it's peaceful. It's useless. You want to pull yourself out of that right away. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor to a bowl of water that's choked with weeds and algae. You can't see anything in there. It's stagnant. But luckily, there are six things to do for overcoming sloth and torpor. Recognize that overeating is the basis of sloth and torpor. Changing the postures attention to the perception of light, living in the open air, noble friends and noble conversations. So, uh, 
we've talked about how overeating can lead to sleepiness. And so if you eat moderate amounts on the retreat, it's just going to go much better for you. You won't be drawn so much into the hindrance of sensual desire, and you won't be falling asleep. Changing the postures, attention to the perception of light, living in the open air. Make sure you've got enough fresh air, okay? Whatever that takes, opening a window, having a fan on, whatever, make sure you've got enough fresh air. Stale air is full of carbon dioxide that puts you to sleep. If you're finding that you're sleepy, you can pinch and pull on your earlobes, you can rub your cheeks, if you know where the acupressure point is on the side of your ears, you can squeeze that really tightly. That'll wake you up for a few minutes. Open your eyes. Stare at the brightest light you can see. And if all else fails, stand up. You can do standing meditation. If you're doing standing meditation, make sure to flex your knees. If you lock your knees, you pass out. That's most unpleasant. Okay, so flex your knees and you can continue with the breath or the metta or the body scan or you can put your attention in the subtle movements in your feet as you're keeping your balance. That's actually a very good meditation object. And stand up and if you feel like, yeah, okay, I've got my energy back now. You can sit back down after that, or maybe you just continue standing for the rest of that sitting. All of these that have been given so far are for overcoming the physical sloth and torpor. For the mental, which mostly shows up is, yeah, I'll meditate tomorrow, or no, I'm not going to meditate this morning, I'll meditate tonight, or whatever. The best thing there I can recommend is find some source of inspiration. There are a lot of little spiritual books that have, you know, a page or two of spiritual teachings. And I used to have one from the Advaita uh, tradition sitting on my coffee table right where I meditated. And yeah, sit down, read one or two of those. They were each a page or two or three long. It was inspiring. And yeah, I'd really get into the meditation. So find something to read that you find inspiring. So if it's time to meditate and you don't want to meditate, at least go read something inspiring or listen to a Dharma talk on the internet or, or whatever. And then, yeah, sit down to meditate. And noble friends and noble conversations. Uh, you can see where that might be helpful. We'll talk about it a bit more in a moment. Having abandoned restlessness and remorse, one dwells at ease within oneself with a peaceful mind. One purifies one's mind from restlessness and remorse. This is often called restlessness and worry, but I looked up the Pali word and it's more closely akin to remorse. Worried about things you did in the past as opposed to worried about things that are going to happen in the future. The worry about things that might happen in the future, I would put under the second hindrance of aversion. But the regretting stuff from the past, the remorse, that's what this is about. And again, it could be 
mental or physical. Sometimes you sit down to meditate and you just can't get comfortable. Your body is just all over the place. Or you sit down to meditate and your mind is all over the place. That's what's being talked about here. And one of the ways that your mind can be all over the place is worrying about the consequences of what you've done in the past or regretting what you've done in the past. And so that's what the remorse part is. Again, we have a simile. Suppose a man were a slave without independence, subservient to others, unable to go where he wants. After some time, he would be released from slavery and gain his independence. He would no longer be subservient to others, but a free man able to go where he wants. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So a slave is always busy, not doing what the slave wants to do, but what the master commands. Go there, do that. Come here, do this. Right? So this busyness, but not really what the slave wants. It's the same thing with the restlessness. Your body can't get settled. Your mind can't get settled. You can't do the meditation you want to do. The Buddha compares it to a bowl of water where there's a strong wind blowing over the surface. It's causing ripples, and you try and look into the depths. You can't see anything. But guess what? There are six things to do for overcoming restlessness and remorse. These are much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, associating with senior monks, noble friends, and noble conversations. Much learning. The Buddha was, yeah, felt it was really important to understand what was going on. There are numerous suttas where he talks about, yeah, study. I mean, what they had to study then was the oral tradition. But we have lots of, we have translations of the oral tradition into English books. Uh, and there are Dharma talks and so forth. So learn what this practice is about. Interrogation. Ask questions. If you have a teacher that doesn't want to answer questions, find a different teacher, right? Uh, questions are really important. There's a book by Tanisaro Bhikkhu called Skill in Questions, and it's an examination of how the Buddha dealt with questions. He had, I believe, four different ways. Sometimes he would ask a counter question. Sometimes he would give a Dhamma talk. Sometimes he would just give a yes or a no. And sometimes he would just keep silent. And uh, just reading this book is quite good. It's one of the free books that to get an actual paperback copy is a little bit difficult, but there's a PDF available somewhere. So if you plug Skilling Questions by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, into Google. You can probably find the PDF of it. And it's wor it's definitely worth reading. So yes, ask a lot of questions. Skill in the Vinaya. The Vinaya is the rules for the monks and nuns. Uh, 217 for the monks and 311 for the nuns. As lay people, we only have five, the five precepts that Matt talked about on the first night. But skill in the precepts is important. This is, 
this is what you do so you don't have anything to have remorse about. Right? If you're following the precepts, then you won't be messing up your life so that when you sit down to meditate, you're worried about something. To take an extreme example, if you've been out robbing banks, when you sit down to meditate, you're going to be worried about the police coming and hauling you away. Right? So don't go robbing banks. Your meditation will go much better. But yeah, skill in the Banaya, leading a life that's harmless, harmless to others, harmless to yourself. It makes for a much more peaceful life. Associating with senior monks. The Buddha multiple times recommended hanging out with people that were smarter than you are, that knew more Dharma than you. This is a really good thing to do. We learn from each other. We want to find people that are great examples of this practice and what it can do for us. So associate with other people on the path that have more experience, more depth of learning than you have. Don't believe anything anybody says now just because they said it. Right? That's It's really important to think for yourself, but you want to take in a lot of different information and figure out what's actually going on. And noble friends and noble conversations, which I will again defer. Having abandoned doubt, one dwells as one who has passed beyond doubt, unperplexed about wholesome states. One purifies one's mind from doubt. Doubt is an insidious hindrance. What we're talking about is skeptical doubt. Doubts of the sort, was the Buddha really enlightened? Is the Dharma really the truth? Is it possible for anybody else to become enlightened? I mean, were those other monks that preserved this, did they know what they were talking about? Doubt about the teacher, doubt about the teachings, and the most insidious of all, doubt about yourself. I can't do this. Well, yeah, this is really hard. I mean, if the spiritual life was easy, we'd all gotten enlightened a long time ago. Yeah, it's hard. But I mean, what else are you going to do? Get a bigger TV? Right? This is a worthwhile thing. It's worthwhile doing things that are somewhat difficult to do. Okay? And, yeah, doubt is one of the hindrances that can really stop you. Now, this doesn't mean you believe everything everybody tells you. You want to examine what you're hearing and check it out. Measure it against what else you've heard. Measure it against what you've read in the suttas. When the Buddha was dying, he said to his disciples, use the suttas basically as your measuring stick. If you hear something, you want to see what it says compared to what I've said in the suttas. Of course, that means you've actually got to study the suttas. Uh, yeah, they're kind of hard to read. There's a great book by Bhikkhu Bodhi called In the Buddhist Words. It's a collection of suttas, and they're arranged by topic, and Bhikkhu Bodhi gives a nice uh, introduction to the topic so you know what you'll be reading. And if you can get a, a reading group together, you can do this over Zoom. You read a few suttas, you get together to discuss what they say. The difficulty with reading suttas is overcoming the repetition, actually learning to deal with the repetition. 
once you d can deal with it, it's actually quite helpful. And you can read a whole page in about three seconds if it's repeating what was on the previous page with just a few tweaks to it. But yeah, that's a really good way to measure. Is what somebody's telling you actually fit what the Buddha was saying? If you don't want to read suttas, okay, but you need to find teachers that you can trust that they understand what the Buddha was teaching. And then when you hear other things, check it out with what you've heard in the past. Of course, there's a simile. Suppose a man were a slave without independence, subservient to others. Oops, wrong one. Suppose a man with wealth and possessions were traveling along a desert road where food was scarce and dangers were many. After some time, he would cross over the desert and arrive safely in a village, which is safe and free from danger. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. So, if you're on a perilous desert journey, where bandits abound and provisions are scarce, first you think to go this way, but wait, there won't be any water. We should go this way, but there's sure to be bandits. One does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. The same thing can happen on the spiritual path. First, you start out with Vipassana, right? But it's kind of dry. You know, you want something with a little more juice, right? And the Tibetans, I mean, they got these colorful tankas, you know, like that one. And they, they got horns. And it's, it's yeah, you got to do the Tibetan thing. And you start doing Tibetan practice and... Well, it turns out to be a little too Baroque, a little too Catholic. Zen, that's where it's got to be, Zen. I mean, you know, look at their gardens, and they got all these great stories, so you start practicing Zen. Turns out they hit you with a stick. Sufi dancing, Sufi dancing. You're not making any progress at all. I've heard it said if you really want to know where a spiritual path leads, you've got to follow it for five years. Okay, now this doesn't mean if you start on a spiritual path and you think, oh no, this is not for me, I'm stuck here for five years. No, if you really realize it's not working, yeah, find something else. But if you find yourself continually looking for something else without ever taking anything to any depth, yeah, you're like the guy on the desert journey who's not making any progress at all. Find a path that you think has a heart and stick with it far enough to see where it leads. And of course, there are six things for overcoming skeptical doubt. Much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, resolution, noble friends and noble conversations. So the much learning. Yeah, if you have doubts, learn what's going on. Maybe your doubts are valid, but you can't really validate what's going on unless you learn what's going on. So much learning. Interrogation. Ask questions. If you have doubts, ask questions. Skill in the Vinaya. The keeping of the precepts is really the first practice that you want to undertake. And unlike in some spiritual traditions, the precepts are not thou shalt not. There, I undertake the training to, right? And so they're there because they work. 
They lead to a better life. They're not there, and if you don't keep them, you're going to hell. That's not part of what's going on. It's about if you keep these, you'll lead a life of harmlessness. Harmlessness for yourself, harmlessness with the people that you interact with. If you're leading a harmless life, is that better than if you're leading an abrasive life? Check it out and see. This is These are fairly easy practices to undertake. Okay, you messed up. Take the precept again. Right, you killed a mosquito. All right, I undertake the precept to refrain from killing living beings. Next time, maybe you don't have to kill the mosquito. And then resolution. Resolve to follow the path you're on far enough to see where it leads. Don't bail out at the first sign of trouble. But also don't get lost in the path and think you have to stay there if there are multiple signs that this isn't working. And then noble friends and noble conversations. There is a story about Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, having a discussion with another monk about what was the most essential ingredient on the spiritual path. The other monk was the meditation master, and so, of course, he said that meditation was the most important part of the path. But Ananda was a very gregarious and outgoing soul, and he said that he thought it was noble friends and noble conversations were the most important part. And so, after they argue back and forth for a while, they go see the Buddha, and they sit down, they salute, sit down, and Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable Sir, I say that noble friends and noble conversations are half the holy life. And the Buddha replies, Do not say so, Ananda. Noble friends and noble conversations are the entire holy life. This stuff is hard. It really helps to have other people to inspire you, to bounce your doubts off of, to point out that you're doing something stupid when you're angry or pursuing sensual pleasures or whatever, to inspire you that they're sitting for an hour every day, you can sit for an hour every day or whatever, okay? So it's really helpful to have noble friends with whom you can have noble conversations. It's a shame that we don't have the sitting groups that we had before the pandemic took hold, because then it was a, a great place to, to meet people with whom you could have noble conversations. But there are a number of online sitting groups, and it, towards the end of the retreat, maybe we can help you find some. Uh, you don't need them while we're in this retreat. But yeah, there's some that are happening, and they have weekly discussions or every other week discussions and so forth. So find some noble friends with whom you can have noble conversations. This is the best way to overcome the hindrances. It's an antidote for all of them. When one sees that these five hindrances are not abandoned within oneself, one regards that as a debt, as an illness, as confinement in prison, as slavery, as a desert road. But when one sees these five hindrances have been abandoned within oneself, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. Quite secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and dwells in the first jhana. 
So this is a preliminary practice. This is what we're trying to do by generating excess concentration. Getting beyond these states that hinder progress on the spiritual path. Temporarily, you don't get them all uprooted permanently until you're fully awakened. But we can deal with them temporarily, set them aside, suppress them if you want to use that word, and do our deep practice. Generate the concentration that will enhance our insight practice.